this? Or you're not? Okay, so as I introduce our guest speaker today, uh, West Bentley has been working in a country that's probably seen more human suffering in South Sudan than a lot of other countries. A country that's had difficulties with genocide, a country that's been a very difficult country to work in. He's founded a ministry organization called Far Reaching Ministries. And we had dinner the other night, and I didn't know it, but they were instrumental in seeing the Calvary Chapel in Uganda, the large Calvary Chapel planted there. And I, I think as I was trying to decide how to introduce Wes and talk a little bit about it, I guess what I, in listening to him over the last few years and then meeting on, for dinner, I think the thing that I would say about Wes is um, he really is not asking the first question when any, any ministry opportunities arise. He's not asking the first question, is it safe? And I think there's a little bit right now in our culture where we're kind of so afraid and that first question is sort of driving us rather than the biblical question of, are there things that God's calling us to sacrifice and difficult things? So welcome Wes as he comes and shares with us about the work with Far Reaching. Folks, uh, always blessed to be back here and to have the opportunity to share with you. Uh, we, to give you a little bit of an understanding before we get started, uh, we have been involved in the longest running civil war in Africa, the war in Southern Sudan. In a second here, I lost something. In the last 60 years of the nation, we have had 37 years of declared war, but in reality, we've been fighting for over 60 years in that country, and uh, we're fighting on several major fronts right now. Uh, I want to give you guys, we're going to kind of go on a journey today, and as I take you on a journey, please understand the Lord has taken us on a journey. The title of the message is, I will not give to the Lord what costs me nothing, and we're going to be in Luke chapter 19, and I want to share with you folks so that you have an understanding. About 17 years ago, we became the official training arm for the Southern Sudanese Army of training all chaplains for their military. We have a very intense Bible school. Three days a week, we get our guys up at 5 o'clock in the morning, and we run them nine miles. We take them straight up a mountain and straight down a mountain. And then we have eight hours of class time and two and a half hours of study time daily. Uh, that's Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday, we get them up and spend two to three hours in prayer with them. And the reason we do that is because if you teach it, but you do not live it, it will lose the effect on the men's lives. Uh, we only feed our guys about two meals a day, and we train them uh, to be going into extremely hard combat situations. Uh, but when they graduate, they have to march from our base camp to the capital, Juba, which is 110 miles. And to graduate, they have to make it in under 48 hours. We did a test run while we were overseas, and we marched in 56 miles in 17 hours. So we train these guys extremely hard. I always tell people that one of the things that we need to understand as believers is that salvation is a free gift of God, but the rewards of heaven are earned. And a lot of people don't really understand that. You know, the Bible says that in my father's house, there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would not have told you. So most people believe that when they die, they automatically go to heaven and get a mansion. But that's not what the scripture says. It says there are many mansions. It doesn't say they're all mansions. I've often wondered how many one bedroom flats or two bedroom condos there might be up in heaven. And we have to ask ourselves if we never truly do anything for Christ in this life where it costs us, what do we really expect on the other side of eternity? And King David understood this very well. He said, I will not give to the Lord what costs me nothing. You know, we think about our financial giving to the church. You know, we pay our tithing. We feel as though we paid our tax. But have we ever gone to a point that it's actually caused us a bit of suffering on our own side? Or when we do childcare, do we only do childcare if it's our children? Or are we not willing to do it when there are other children in the area? And these are some of the things that we have to ask ourselves as believers, folks, because God has called us to a life of sacrifice, and many Christians do not understand that. I always tell people that I'm not a good vacationer. You know, uh, I have friends that are great vacationers. They can go to the beach. They can do things all the time. I'm just not one of those people. Out of the 52 weekends of the year, normally I'm either on the road or overseas, 50 of them, either traveling, speaking in the United States, or overseas working with our different projects. And folks, we've been in a major civil war. In December of 2013, a coup broke out within the nation of Southern Sudan. The former vice president of the country tried to take over the nation. He was was not successful, but probably more than 100,000 people would die in that attempted coup attempt. 
I was actually in Russia at the time, and I go to Russia every year. Uh, I've been in Sudan for 20 years, but before that, I spent five years in the former Soviet Union traveling from prison to prison preaching the gospel. And uh, so I go back there about once a year, and truthfully, guys, it's a respite for me. I would say it's what would be the equivalent of my vacation. And I love going there. I love being with the Russian church. I love the cold weather. I like getting out of the heat of Sudan. And, uh, but I got a call from my wife, Vicki, on January 2nd. It was about midnight, and she said, honey, they have surrounded the national headquarters. They're trying to assassinate the general. They've been in a three-and-a-half-hour gun battle. And the reason she knew that was because I had led this general to Christ many years ago. I have an extremely close relationship with him. I was the best man in his wedding. He's the minister of national security, which is kind of the equivalent of our CIA and NSA combined. And he had called his wife in the capital of Kampala to tell her what was going on should he not survive it. And uh, she called my wife and I said, Vicki, I've got to get off the phone. I've got to deal with this situation immediately. And I got off the phone and I called two of my senior chaplains in the capital of Juba. I said, listen guys, they're trying to assassinate the general. If we lose this general, we are going to lose the nation. I said, you get every soldier you can and you get down there and you counterattack. Do not worry about your lives. Do not worry whether you survive or not. If we lose them, we're going to lose the nation. And our guys mounted up in the vehicles and they headed down to the national headquarters. It was nighttime. And they said they literally drove into a hell of gunfire as they're coming down the road. Tracer rounds were coming down the road at them. And folks, if you're not familiar with what a tracer round is, it's a bullet that has a red or orange glow that follows the bullet. So it helps you to direct your fire at nighttime. When they got up to the national headquarters, they, they pulled up their vehicle. There were dead bodies everywhere. They dismounted the vehicle. They went in, they set up mortars. Uh, there were two positions of fire the enemy was firing from. They sent two mortars into one and one into the other, and they silenced the enemy. When I called the general at four o'clock in the morning, I said, General, how are you doing? And he goes, I'm here with the men that you sent, my brother. And then he said to me, he goes, Wes, I need you to immediately deploy 20 of your chaplains to the front lines. He goes, this was a sneak attack on my men. He goes, many of my men were killed. He goes, they want revenge. He goes, fighting and killing is a part of warfare, but murder, rape, pillaging, and plundering is not. And so I immediately called and deployed 20 chaplains to the front line. Now, folks, what had happened was there was a, with the vice president's tribe, they attacked a major city in the Sudan called Bor. When they hit Bor, it was genocide. They almost completely wiped it off the map. They went into the city. They killed every man, woman, and child. They went into the hospitals. They shot the people in their beds. They raped every young girl from the age of nine to 90 years of age, whether they're married, pregnant, it didn't matter. And then they executed them. And so we deployed uh, 20 of our guys and they went up with a group of about 400 soldiers at a place called Sudan Safari. They ran into a major ambush by enemy soldiers, over 1,500 enemy combatants. And uh, they said that they were able to fight them off, but they came back with a vengeance. And what would ensue was about another four-hour gun battle. They said during this time, they said there was something that was really remarkable because it was completely out in the open. Next to our vehicle was a military vehicle. We had our chaplaincy vehicle with a chaplain's flag flying above it. The military vehicle was hit by an RPG. It blew up and killed everybody inside of it. But in four hours of fighting in the complete open, not one bullet or piece of shrapnel hit our vehicle. And I don't even know how that's possible, but it became a great witness to the soldiers and it gave us a great opportunity to lead many men to Christ. Now I was in Russia and I had to get back from Russia, get turned around and get back overseas. And so I got overseas, I landed on the ground, I picked up 13 of my men and we headed up to the front lines. It took about seven soldiers with us on the way. As you're going up to the city of Bor, every village is completely vacated, not a single human being left. Many of them are destroyed. About 90 kilometers out, you begin to see the destruction. We ran into four destroyed T-72 tanks. There were dead bodies on top of them, around them, all over the roads. The day that we arrived in Bor, our chaplains had buried over 700 people on that one day alone. And this is a couple of weeks after the main event happened. So this gives you a level of the destruction that happened in Bor. And you know, during this time, we're in the middle of a major civil war, and the Lord began to speak to me about going into the ISIS territory. And I said, you know, Lord, it isn't that I don't care, but I'm in, we're fighting on multiple fronts in the Sudan. We've got the war up in the Nuba Mountains was the Islamic North. We're fighting the vice president's tribe. There's a couple other groups that have broken off and started other rebel insurrections. We're literally fighting all over the place. 
From 2000 to 2013, 13 of my chaplains were killed in the war. In the last two years alone, 14 of them have been killed. And that was the level of fighting that was going on in the Sudan. And we've been providing major medical supplies into the Nuba Mountains. You know, folks, in the Nuba Mountains, uh, we had flown in about uh, 21 metric tons of medical supplies there. And the commanding general of the Nubian army actually flew to my compound. And he said, Wes, he goes, you will never know how many lives you have saved. He said, last year, your medical supplies touched over two. 279,000 lives. He goes, what our own government has failed to do, far-reaching ministries has accomplished. So we've been involved on multiple fronts, and all of a sudden God starts to call us into the ISIS territory. When the Lord spoke to me about this, folks, at first I said, Lord, it isn't that I don't care, but I don't take any time off it as it is. Literally, I take off about two weekends a year, and the rest of the time I'm traveling or speaking. Now, folks, truthfully, I'm geared that way. I'm just not a person who's geared towards leisure. You know, if we go to the beach and we're barbecuing, I can deal with it. But if we're just going there to sit in the sand after five minutes, I don't know what I'm doing there, and I want to go back to the office or go back to work. It's just the way that I am. But, you know, during this time, I just could not quite understand it. But the Lord told me to begin investigating. Now, folks, in America, we edit our news. In Africa, they do not edit their news. When they talk about having someone's head cut off, you will not see it on national TV. I've witnessed it on national TV in Africa, and it is one of the most horrific things that you will ever see. The people are terrified when they're going through this event. Their lungs are heaving with air, and even after they remove the head, for a period, the lungs will continue to breathe because of the terror of what these people were going through. And the Lord is all of a sudden speaking to us about this. But what finally got me is I came across a photo of a little girl. She was probably about two and a half, three years of age. She was wearing a little blue and white dress. Her father was holding her in his arms, and Isis had cut her head off because she belonged to a Christian family. And at that point, we realized we had to get in the battle. We had to begin rescuing Christians out from under Isis and going into the Middle East. God would lead us to raise over a half a million dollars to send into the Middle East to start pulling Christians out, relocating them, bringing food to the Syrian Christian church, and also into Iraq and places like that. So we were very heavily involved. We started a division of our ministries. We call it ghost operations. It's the invisible hand into the closed Islamic world. And we are supporting, we're going to be supporting over 700 pastors and missionaries that are all in the underground in these radical Islamic areas like Hezbollah, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, Taliban, uh, Islamic Jihad, Islamic Brotherhood, Hamas. And so God's got us very well involved there. But you know, my wife and I, we went to the Middle East to meet with members that were victims of ISIS. And when we went there, there's an interview that's very haunting. It was of a young girl. She was probably about nine years of age. And this young girl uh, had witnessed the entire execution of her family. She was the only one that survived. And, uh, you know, uh, probably the only reason she did survive, if you're aware of what they do over there, they have what they call these sex camps. They've got about 3,500 women in them for 30,000 soldiers. So it gives you a level of the rape that what these women go through every day. And this young girl says, almost in a very quiet and timid voice, I want my mom, I want my mom, I want my mom. And then the temple of her voice rises and it goes higher and higher and higher to the point that it goes to a shrill and then she's screaming at the top of her lungs, I want my mom, I want my mom, I want my mom. Now she knows that she will never ever see her mother again but her little brain cannot handle it. One of the things that we need to realize is we're living in a generation where we are raising a generation of effeminate men. Men were never supposed to be like this, folks. We were truly made for battle. We were made to get into the thick of it. We were made to be protectors of women and children. And we need to understand that God has called us, especially as Christian men, to look out across the world and see where people are under persecution. The Bible says, if you see your brother in need and you do nothing, how can the love of Christ be in you? And we as believers are supposed to be protectors of those that cannot protect themselves. I've shared with people before that when I first went to Africa, like most people, I went there to be a pastor, a Bible teacher, an evangelist. I never dreamed I'd actually have to get physically involved in the longest running civil war in Africa, but the rebels began coming down and hitting the villages that were around us. One of the villages they attacked was called Machwini. They took 58 newborn babies and they crushed their heads against trees. And we realized that we had to start protecting them. So we began to build sanctuaries for women and children to come in at night. When the sun would begin to go down in northern Uganda and southern Sudan, you would see a trickle of women and children coming in. But by the time the sun went down, they were literally coming in by the thousands. They estimated 44,000 people a night were coming in looking for sanctuary. Among the southern Sudanese army, they are great warriors. They're extremely tenacious in battle, but often they would fight extremely hard until they realized they could not win the battle. And when they realized they could not win the battle, they would pull back and say, live to fight another day. 
One of the villages they pulled back in, the rebels came in and they built these huge bonfires and they picked up the babies and the toddlers and they threw them in and they burned them alive. And we realized we had to do something about this. So I set the soldiers down one day and I said, guys, I want you to understand something here. I go, it is not your job to save your life. It is your job to save their lives. We're men, they're women and children. If the enemy comes, not one of you guys is to pull off that line until we have evacuated every single woman and child. If you die, then you die. That is the role of a man. We are called to protect those that cannot protect themselves. Now folks, I'm gonna take another turn and please understand the reason I'm doing it because the Lord took us on a very big journey. You know, I was going down to Mexico to speak at Juan Domingo's church. And Juan's a wonderful Christian man. He's actually born American. He gave up his American citizenship to become Hispanic uh, citizen so that he could relate to the Hispanic people. He has planted over 90 Calvary chapels in uh, Mexico. And uh, he's actually has a pretty large church in Ensenada, about 800 adults. And uh, he, he, uh, he asked me to come down there and to spend... Uh, uh, teach at his church on Sunday, and then also uh, uh, spend a week at his Bible school. And I had gone down there, but folks, something had happened previous to that. Now, I've been going to Russia for many years, and like I say, I love going there in the winter. For me, to going in the 40 below zero weather and being out in the brisk air, I love it. It's just nice for me. And I love the fellowship of the Russian believers. It just, it's just incredible for me. But you know, I was over there about 15 years ago, and as I was traveling over there, for some reason the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart and told me to bring a woman's watch. I didn't know why, I just felt a, a strong impression from the Lord. Well, I always go over around uh, Christmas time. Now, American Christmas is December 25th, but Russian Christmas is January 7th. It's very different than ours. And uh, the biggest holiday of the year is not Christmas, it's New Year's over there. So everything shuts down from the 31st to about the 10th of January which is a great time to go and teach conferences and have fellowship with the church. And, uh, but while I was over there, I was teaching. It was a Christmas morning. I was in the church, and I'm looking outside and seeing snowflakes about the size of quarters coming down, a very picturesque scene when all of a sudden I spot a woman out in the audience. She's about 74 years of age, and she has a large birthmark or mold that covers almost half of her face. And when I saw her, the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart and said, this is the woman you're supposed to give the watch to. As I got to know her, I would find out her name was Lydia. Lydia, because of the birthmark, had had a very, very difficult life. She had never been married. She had never had a boyfriend. She had never had a man tell her that she was beautiful or that he loved her. She struggled through life tremendously. She always had the worst jobs in Russian society. The first time she ate chocolate in her life, she was 50 years of age. Uh, she told me that she lived off of a diet of uh, fried potatoes and uh, cabbage. Uh, she would, could only afford to drink milk about twice a year. She would walk into the store and look at raviolis and shake her head because they were too expensive. And when I walked up and I shared with Lydia that the Lord had told us to give her the watch, she started to cry. And she goes, my watch has not worked for two years, but I could not afford another one. And I was embarrassed to take it off. I found out her winter jacket she had from the 1960s. How she kept it together all those years, I have no idea. Well, the Lord put laid it on her heart to take care of Lydia. So, you know, we went and visited her flat. By American standards, it would be destroyed. It would be condemned. You would not even be allowed to repair it. But it's very different over in Russia. And we wrote to the body of Christ, and the body of Christ responded tremendously. And we actually raised enough money to completely rebuild her flat. We gutted it. We pulled out all the piping, all the appliances, all the cabinets, and just built it from the ground up again. We're able to buy her all new furniture and then give her money where she could take care of her medical bills and things the rest of her life. And I'd always promised Lydia, I promised Lydia that I would come over and spend every Christmas with her until she went home to be with the Lord. One of the things that Lydia had always wanted to do was go to the world famous Bolshoi Ballet. It was a dream in her life to experience that. And it took us probably nine months to get the tickets. It's very difficult to get them. My wife, Vicki, she loves the ballet. The girls in my office, they love the ballet. Me, not so much, you know. Uh, but we made plans to go to the ballet. And we brought Lydia to Moscow and we rented a Marriott hotel. And Marriott hotels are very different in Russia because most of them are old palaces that they've renovated. They're very magnificent. And we put her in a room with one of our uh, uh, missionaries, Natasha, to watch over her. And she was so innocent, she'd never seen television in her life. And the one thing that she got into is she started watching television every day and she was watching Wile E. Coyote on the television and stuff. And she's not only watching it, she's into the show and she turns to Natasha, she goes, Natasha, this coyote is very, very bad. 
bad, you know. And uh, the one thing she wanted to do every day was get back and find out what happened with that coyote. I, I, I didn't have the heart to tell her that the story never ended because she was too into it, you know. But the day of the ballet came, guys, and it was truly, uh, we took her out, we bought her a new dress, we got her a new outfit, we took her to, to get her hair done. And uh, as the time of the ballet came, I went to the concierge to get our taxi. And the concierge says to me, he goes, you have tickets to the world famous Bolshoi Ballet? I said, yes, I do. He goes, you know, there are people that would pay you $10,000 for those tickets. I said, trust me, I would pay someone $10,000 to take my place, you know. Uh, but we went to the ballet that night and Lydia really loved it. I mean, she, she was weeping through the ballet. Her hands were moving to it and she cried almost the whole time. Vicky turned to me and she goes, honey, she goes, uh, uh, Lydia and Natasha are crying. I said, they're not the only ones, uh, just for different reasons stuff. But we had a wonderful time with her. You know, folks, I got back to America and the last time I was over with Christmas, I would, we'd always have Christmas, uh, spend Christmas Eve with her, which was uh, January 6th. And we'd kind of have a combination of an American and a Russian Christmas dinner. Uh, we would sing Christmas carols late in the nights, always brought her gifts, mostly things that brought comfort to her life, like warm winter jackets or soft shoes or a house coat, things like that. But I did buy her a piece of jewelry because no man had ever bought it for her. And I felt that she needed to feel love this way. But the last time I was there, I, I could just tell that she was a little bit slower. Every time I would come there, she would just smother me with kisses and stuff. And I told my wife, Vicki, you need to step it up a little bit because Lydia's outdoing you and she's 85 years old, you know. And, uh, but she would just literally smother me with them. And, uh, and I got home from America and folks, truthfully, I was only home about two days. And Vicki called me and she said, honey, Lydia's had a massive stroke. She's going home to be with the Lord. And uh, I got quiet on the phone and Vicki said, are you okay? And I said, I just need some time alone, love. I, I need to think about this. So I'm down in Mexico, and I explained to Juan Domingo when I get there, I said, Juan, I know I'm supposed to teach at your Bible school for the next week, but I always promised Lydia that when she died, I would be there to bury her. I would be there to share Christ with her family, which since that time, I've been able to lead one of her nieces and one of her nephews to Christ. It's been very sweet. We have a good relationship. And I said, I, I just cannot stay. I said, my assistant will stay and teach. And he goes, Wes, will you please come and will you visit our orphanage before you go? And I go, yes, I'll come to your orphanage. Now, folks, I know why he wants me there. When we're in the church, I'm looking at the chairs in the sanctuary, and they look like they're 60 years old. And for some reason, I just asked my staff, I said, just count the chairs. Let's see how many of them there are. Well, there were 380 chairs in the sanctuary. So we go out to the orphanage, but the orphanage isn't for normal children. It's for handicapped children. But they're not handicapped from birth. They're handicapped by parental abuse. And we get there, and it's the birthday kind of for the little star of the orphanage, a little girl by the name of Jessica. And Jessica uh, is six years old on that day. It was her birthday. She had a little Mickey Mouse dress. There was a little Mickey Mouse pinata. But folks, when they got her at the age of one, she had cigarette burns all across her body because her parents were taking drugs and smoking cigarettes and burning their baby daughter. Her eyes were so damaged that worms entered into them and they had to remove her eyes. There was another little girl there by the name of Isabella and Isabella was strangled by her parents and thrown into the trash. Uh, she was born normal, but because of the lack of oxygen, she will be three years old the rest of her life. And I'm sitting there and I just said to uh, Juan's wife, Tanya, go, uh, Tanya, how are you guys supporting this place? They said, well, truthfully, we're really struggling. They said, we have two full-time workers. Uh, they're here seven days a week, 365 days a year, 24 hours a day. Uh, we can't afford to pay them. We give them $50 a month. They live and eat here, but we can't afford to pay them. We're struggling to keep this place open. Now, folks, we're in the middle of a civil war in the Sudan. We're heavily involved in ISIS territory now. We've got over 1,200 people in the field between the two operations, not accounting support staff. And I started to pray, and you begin to feel the stirring of the Holy Spirit. And I said, well, Lord, are you actually calling us to take this on too? And the Lord just kind of spoke to me and said, feed my sheep. Well, folks, we didn't have the money in our budget. And this is what I'm talking about. So often when we look at things, we look at an end of our own ability, not through the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And one of the things that I've learned in ministry, guys, is when the Holy Spirit speaks to you, he has a plan. You may not know it. You may not see it. You may not understand it. All is important is you walk forward in faith and you trust the Lord. And so we made the decision to support the orphanage. We went down to Costco. We put, bought about $10,000 worth of food that day. We renovated the place. We put in a playground. We bought new princess bedroom sets for all the little girls and little race car bedroom sets for all the boys. And, you know, we hired uh, six full-time workers there in Mexico. A starting wage is about $250. Uh, a good starting wage is about $400. So we hired six ladies and we're paying them $500 a month each. And, uh, and I got back to America and I called a chair manufacturer and I said, you know guys, uh, this church really needs some chairs. And it was a Christian company. 
And they said, well, we have exactly what you need. And it's exactly the same type that you have here in the sanctuary. And I said, how many of them do you have in stock? They said, we have exactly 380 in stock. So at this point, you really begin to realize this isn't coincidence, this is God's hand. Well, we ended up going out, we bought the chairs, we spent $50,000. Now we have discretionary funds, but we don't have anything designated for this. The very next weekend, I'm in a church and I'm talking about what happened. I don't tell anybody about the money. I just tell them what the Lord led us to do. Afterwards, a gentleman walks up and he hands me a pistol bag. You know, it's a bag that carries a pistol. I thought he was actually donating a gun to our ministry. And I thought, you know, maybe I need to change my message a little bit. I think this guy's getting the wrong idea, you know. And, uh, but I go out to my car and I open the bag and in it is $35,000 in $100 bills and 11 gold coins, the equivalent of $50,000. Everything that we spent, God gave back a week later. And this is what I'm talking about. The Bible says it's impossible to please God without faith. The very action of faith moves the hand of God to work in a very, very powerful way. I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 19 and we're gonna be in verse, uh, starting in verse 11, folks. In Luke chapter 19, we have the parable of the 10 minas. And it says, while they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called 10 of his servants and he gave them 10 minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for his servants to whom he had, he, he had given the money in order to find out what they'd gained with it. The first one came and said, sir, your mine has earned 10 more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied, because you've been trustworthy and very smart, all matters take charge of 10 cities. The second came and said, sir, your mind has earned five more. His master answered, you take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, sir, here's your mind. I've kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and you reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his mind away from him and give it to the one that has 10 minus. Sir, they said he already has 10. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. And folks, what this piece of scripture is talking about is either winning souls or bearing fruit for the kingdom of God. The Bible says the eye is not seen, the ear is not heard, the mind cannot conceive the things that God has prepared for those that love him. Now, I don't know truly if we lay 10 souls to the Lord in this lifetime, will we truly be over 10 cities? But see, the Bible says that we cannot conceive the things that God has prepared for those that love him. Folks, I have a great ability to imagine large projects. We're in the process of building three castles in Africa. Uh, they're gonna be different biblical training schools. One of them will cover 40 acres. We're gonna take in over 1,000 students. And it's gonna be kind of like a Christian West Point. And the reason we're doing it is because in Africa, militaries control nations. So to change the moral compass of the nation, you have to change the military. And we're gonna train our guys to either go into the ministry or go into the military. It's gonna be one of the two. We don't teach our guys to live a balanced Christian walk. We tell them you absolutely sell out for the gospel. You love Jesus Christ with such a passion that it utterly drives your life, that you have a burden for the lost, that you care for those that are perishing. But I have the ability to conceive things like that. But the Bible says the things that God has prepared for those that love him, we don't have the ability to conceive. I can conceive a mountain like Mount Rainier that's a mountain of gold or a mountain of money, a house that's a mile long with all the luxury cars, the finest of food, the finest of clothing, servants. But God says the things that he's prepared for those that love him, we do not have the ability to conceive. When the Bible talks about God washing away every sorrow and tear, people always believe it's because of the loved ones that didn't get saved. I don't think that's what it is at all. I think it's when we see the lives that we could have had and we chose not to, and we get on the other side of eternity, I think that's where God's gonna have to wipe away the sorrows and tears, realizing that our lives for the kingdom could have been so much more. And again, King David said, I will not give to the Lord what costs me nothing. I wanna share with you guys about one of our chaplains that was killed in the last three weeks of his life, folks. We had a chaplain by the name of Peter Guy. 
Uh, in the video it says Peter McGore. Peter was uh, a very dynamic young man. Uh, he's got a large gap in between his two front teeth. Now the only reason I tell you that, because you'll notice him when you see him up there, but in Sunni society, uh, if you have a gap in between your teeth, you're either considered a very handsome man or a very good-looking woman. Woman. I don't know why, but that's just the way they think of it there. And uh, Peter was one of those guys. But guys, a month before Peter died, his wife left him for another man. He was devastated by it. He was truly heart-sick and broken. He had five children. He loved his wife. He loved his children. And what she said to him is, I don't want to be married to a chaplain or a pastor. I want the better life. Now, there is no better life in southern Sudan. I'm sure it was just lust of the flesh for another man. But it truly broke Peter's heart. Peter was with a major frontline unit that was in very heavy combat. There were about 700 men in his unit. They were facing an enemy force of somewhere in the area of about 7,000 men. They were outnumbered 10 to 1. They had fought three major battles. They were down to 400 men. There was an ominous feeling among all the men that they were going to die. And you know what? Folks, that ominous feeling was right. They all were going to die. And the men were afraid. And, he, and, and we, the only reason we know this, we didn't just lose Peter on that day. We lost three men. We found out three of our chaplains had been killed. But there was a fourth chaplain in the area, and he's transferred out one week before they were all killed. And he said, you know, Wes, he goes, Peter was suffering, but the soldiers did not know it. He said, because the men were afraid, Peter would take his Bible. He would go out among the men. You would see him sit down with 20 men. He would open his Bible, be talking to them. 30 minutes later, all their heads would go down, and he'd lead them to Christ. And then he'd get 10, and then 15, and then 5, and then another 20. And when he ran out of energy, he would come back, and he would suffer in silence with us. And then he would go out, and he'd repeat it again. A week before they were killed, his sister called him and said, Peter, your wife has left you. You need to come home and take care of your five kids. And Peter responded to her, and he said, first of all, I am a chaplain within the Southern Sudanese army. He goes, he goes, to leave is desertion, which is punishable by firing squad. He said, but far beyond that, in the book of John, Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and I appointed you to go. He goes, I was chosen by God to be here at this particular place in time with these men and I will not leave my post. They said that they were in radio communication with headquarters just before the last battle. And they said, we see a great army arrayed against us. We will call you after this battle is over. Folks, that phone call never came. All 300, 400 men were killed in that battle. We have never recovered the body of Peter or our other two chaplains. They lie among some 700 men whose bodies are no longer distinguishable by the ravages of war. But I think about when Peter crossed over. He didn't just cross over by himself. He crossed over with 400 men that he had led to Jesus Christ. Will he be over 400 cities in the kingdom of God? I don't know, but what I do know is he's a prince in the kingdom of God. He lived a life that had meaning. He lived a life that counted for Jesus Christ. And while he suffered on this earth, when he got to the other side, God washed away every sorrow and every tear. And there is no pain in his life anymore, for he has counted the cost and he has run the race. And now is in store for him a crown of righteousness. I want to share with you a story. And please understand the reason why I'm sharing this story. I don't want them to be seen as a boast. I don't want your praise. I don't want your accolades. But I'm trying to make a strong biblical point, folks. During the war, we had a lot of wounded coming in. And we were going into a village where it had been hit heavily by the Islamic army. As we were coming into the village, the fighting were still off in pockets out on the outreach. You could hear the popping arounds, the, the tattering of machine guns, the occasional RPG going off or mortar. When we came in, it was completely on fire. Things had been burned to the ground. We came in, we set up a medical clinic. I don't remember how long we were there, three or six weeks, something like that. We ran out of supplies, we pulled back, we re-equipped, we came back in. As I was walking into the village, a young girl walks up to me and she says, hi Wes, it's Rebecca, do you remember me? And I said, no Rebecca, I don't remember you. I said, have I ever met you before? She goes, you don't remember me? And I said, no, I don't remember you, Rebecca. She said, the last time you came to our village, our village was on fire. She goes, I was running out of the village, I was completely naked. She said, when you saw me, you stopped, you dropped your backpack, you took off your shirt, you put it on top of me, you picked up your backpack and you walked into the village bare-chested. She goes, do you not remember that? Now folks, truthfully, I would think she had me mixed up with someone else because I don't have any memory of doing it. 
But the truth of the matter, she knew my first and my last name. My name has never existed in the Southern Sudan. Now, since my chaplains have started having children, it's become more common. But previous to that, it never existed. But see, this is the way we're supposed to be. We don't do things to be seen by the world. We don't do it so that we can tell testimonies. It is so much a part of who we are that we do not recognize it or take note of it. See, God has so transformed our lives that we have lost our lives in Christ. We had a situation where Pastor Joe McCormick came out from Utah and he brought his daughter Sarah and two other girls and I think they were 17, 18, and 19 years of age. And one day my wife Vicki was uh, teaching them a Bible study and I walked in to get some coffee because there was coffee in there. And she goes, honey, do you remember that time they caught that thief in the capital of Kampala? There was a huge mob, they surrounded him, they were gonna put a tire on top of him and light it on fire and burn him alive. And you stopped the car, you went into the crowd, you pulled him out and saved his life. And I go, no, Vicki, I don't remember doing that. And one of the young girls looked at me and she goes, how could you forget something like that? I said, you don't understand. This kind of stuff happens all the time in Southern Sudan and Northern Uganda. This is a part of our everyday life. But my point is, is that we do not record these things. It's who we are in Christ. We don't do it, we save our treasures for the other side of eternity. We're living in a generation where every pastor wants to write his book. He wants his name to be known, to establish his ministry, somehow to build his kingdom. Folks, we're not supposed to be doing that. We don't build our kingdom, we build God's kingdom. You know, most of the money that we're raising right now, we're sending to other mission organizations because they're on the ground in the Middle East. And when we started sending them these large donations of two and $300,000, they're saying, Wes, why would you raise money and send it to our organization? Why would you not raise it for your own? I said, because my brothers and sisters in Syria and Iraq are being massacred. And how will I stand before a holy God if on the day of judgment I did nothing? The Bible says if you see your brother in need and do nothing, how can the love of Christ be in you? I want to read you a radio transmission we received, folks, and then we're going to show you a DVD. Now, this radio transmission, we received it during the last war. And the reason I'm reading this to you is it will help you to have an understanding of what is happening to the Syrian and the Iraqi church under ISIS here. And it says, what had happened was the Islamic North had attacked. They displaced thousands of people. They were coming down to villages below them. Food began to disappear very quickly. And it says, radio transmission received from Reverend Chol, relief coordinator, Aqaba, Sudan. Date 23rd March, Meshed. 2,000 returnees arrived in Aqaba on 22nd March from Coachella. Many of them are seriously wounded. They're in very bad condition. Thousands and thousands are still coming to our location. Most of the people are Nuke, Ninka, Nuer, Shaluk, Equatorial. Day 25 March, message, the number of returnees arrived at our location has reached 5,674 yesterday, 24 March. These hopeless people are facing starvation. Otherwise, they will die in masses if food was delayed. Accommodations are a problem now. These people have lost everything. They have lost blankets, clothing. They are staying under trees, now naked. Two ladies and two men are seriously wounded. If United Nations will not rescue them, they will automatically die. The number of wounded are 72 people. Day 27 March. Message, another number of 571 returnees from Mochilla arrived in Aqaba yesterday, 26 March. We know for sure that our Savior will refuge us through your prayers and ours. Therefore, we want you to tell the world that we are suffering to death and the world will know why we're dying. Seven children died last night and more will die today. God is over all. Day 31 March, message, children are dying as follows. 27 March, seven children died. 28 March, 16 children died. 29 March, three children died. 30 March, Five children died. The clinic is running out of drugs. Date 1 April, message. The growing season started. It rained this morning at 3.44 a.m. Nobody will cultivate because there's no seed at all. We need seeds before 10 April. Very urgent and important. Date 3 April, message. Three people, both adults and children, died on 2nd April and 3rd April from hunger. 86 people are not able to get out of bed. We don't know what to do in this circumstance. Please advise us. Otherwise, we will lose everybody in Akabal. Your reply is urgently needed. Date 5 April, message. 37 people, both adults and children, died, on, on, uh, died yesterday and the day before yesterday, but we're still hopeful that there could be people who are still alive. Date 9 April, message. The hunger in Aqabal has made some houses empty for good. The remnants remain with anxiety. Everybody is waiting for this day to end. This tremendous setback has crashed us down. Some tried to reach Nasser. It was not possible because they died before they reached Nasser because their physical body was so weak. Now that the beautiful view of Aqabah has changed into gloom, continue praying for our lives and our hope in heaven. The church leaders will also die. God knows whether we shall live until next week or not. God bless you. You've struggled very much for us. What is remaining is not your failure. Greet everybody for me. Let the world know. Date 10 April, the situation is desperate. 
People are left to starve. 23 people starved yesterday. The rate of starvation is increasing day after day. Everybody is weak and waiting to die. They look for wild fruits, but it is finished. We have no cattle left. We ate all of them. The pastor's wives and others went to Guang nine days ago looking for food. They have not returned. Let all the Christians in the world know that the people of Aqaba are dying of hunger. Let us hear it on the BBC. We're isolated. We're hearing radio reports about United Nations and Red Cross helping Ethiopia and Somalia. Why not Aqaba? All houses the returnees built are empty because they're dying. We don't know if we'll be on the radio next week. It depends on God's will. Although people are dying, we hope that some will remain. Date, 11 April. All transmission ceased. It was the complete, utter destruction of a people group. And the world stood by and did nothing. The Bible says if you see your brother in need and do nothing, how can the love of Christ be in you? You know, folks, we're right in the middle of starvation in the Sudan again. We're trying to feed 2,000 kids a day. It cost our ministry a tremendous amount of money. But if you see your brother in need and do nothing, how can the love of Christ be in you? We have a DVD we're gonna show you. This is of the Syrian church. It's both difficult to watch, but also extremely inspiring how these people are willing to live. I hope this will touch you. Let's go ahead and show that, guys. When the war starts, many problems happen, and it's so difficult to continue the ministry. And we know some, someday uh, the problems is come inside our homes, not just in our city or in our area. Um, that time I speak to the leaders and uh, we met together and I said, as in Acts book, the believers when they have the persecuted, most of them they go out of Jerusalem. If you want now to go out of your area or out of Syria to save your families. This is good if God gave you this to do. But uh, we, we must to know maybe one day the problems come to our families and to our life. And maybe we will lost our life one day. You know, when I left the room and after time, I turned back to see the decision of the leaders. I found 25 people, they stand there, and they said, we will not leave, we will continue to serve God here in this area, and we will continue the ministry. If we are die, we will go to Jesus, and if we leave here, we will be with Jesus. And you know, but they asked me something to do. They said, if one of our team die, you know we are non-Christian background, and no one will take care about our body if we killed or something happened to us. Uh, what we can do if this happened? For that, we buy this land and we built a graveyard. This graveyard for if anyone killed from our team, we can put him there. This is the first building of our ministry. I think it's first uh, happened in Raqqa city in Syria. They give the chance for the uh, Christian. They said to him, if you leave your Christianity now, you can be uh, hold your life, or if not, we will kill you. This, this decision is, you, you know, it's must to, to, to take it directly. And most of the uh, Christians said, no, we are ready to die for Jesus. And for that, they, uh, you, you can see many uh, pictures about the Christian. They put them in the cross. And when they put them, many times they put in the uh, area, all the people can see them. To learn the people, if you will be Christian, this is your what will happen to you. Uh, and uh, most of the people, I thank God for these uh, heroes in the faith. They die for Jesus and they put them in the cross. You remember when I told you about the stories about the man who uh, was his son and uh, they bring them and they ask them to leave uh, them faith in Jesus Christ. But the father said no and the son said no. And they asked the father, if you don't uh, come to Islam now, we will, we will kill your son in front of your, your eyes. 
And after that, they cut the head of the son and they start to play football in his head, front of his father's eyes. This is something incredible. You cannot understand what's happened. But through all this bad news, you can see the hope is growing between this uh, uh, difficult and uh, bad people. You know, so sometimes many people ask me why, why you continue in the ministry in Syria, especially in this time in the war. The important things for, uh, for our life to be in God willing. This is our call from God to, uh, to do the ministry in Syria. When we are inside the, the God willing, that means we are in the safe place. But if we are go out of God willing and go out of Syria, that means we are in the dangerous place. Maybe I, I can go like to Lebanon, to Jordan, to US, to, to anywhere and continue my life there. But that means I am go out of God willing. That means I am in dangerous. The important things in our life, not to be alive, but to be with Jesus willing. But if I am in, inside the dangerous, but in God willing, that means I am in the safe place. This is my belief and I trust in Jesus. He will keep my life and when he wants me to go to him, I am ready to do this. Folks, Pastor Danny went back into the Middle East. This DVD was done about four months ago. He has gone missing. We believe that he's been killed for the gospel. There is a great lie that Islam is the fastest growing religion. And it's a lie, folks. There was an Islamic imam that sounded an alarm 20 years ago that said, we are losing 6 million Muslims a year to Christianity. They grow by birth. They do not grow by conversion. And that is why they're fighting jihad around the world. We found out that for $10,000, I believe it was, we could feed 500 people for six weeks. And so our first gift was 75,000. We sent over $200,000, folks. One of our contacts, the Christians didn't just take the food for themselves, but they began going to Muslims for the first time they were open to the gospel. One of our contacts walked up to a house to drop off a box of food but he realized the husband was not home. In Islamic law, it's illegal to go into a man's house with his wife if he's not home. So he said, ma'am, I'm sorry. 
I did not realize your husband was not here. I will return later. As he turned to leave, the top Islamic imam of that city was coming up the driveway, and he said, my brother, you are the only person that I would trust to be in the house with my wife alone. Since that time, that Islamic imam has become a born-again believer and is now doing Bible studies in the underground. We are winning the war for the gospel, folks. We are winning the war all around the world. And that's why it's getting so severe towards the end. As you leave today, we have a few opportunities for you folks. We have a division of our ministry, we call it Ghost Operations. You could not make out the photo of the people on there. We've changed their names. Some of them gives their location, some of it, it does not. It's too critical, we cannot tell you where they're at. Usually that means Syria or Iraq, but we cannot tell you. This one here is Afghanistan in Taliban territory, which is also a very extreme group over there. We can never give you an update on this, but 100% of what we raise, we send to another Christian organization. We don't take a penny of it, a dime of it, a nickel of it. 100% is going to someone else. Why? Because we're not building our kingdom, we're building God's kingdom. If you'd like to sponsor one of these pastors, it is $75 a month. We also have the children of Casa Renti. This is little Brisa with her sister Jessica, the little blind one. And there's 11 children in the family. We have two of them. We're trying to get the other nine right now. If you'd like to sponsor them, it's $50 a month to sponsor one of these. And again, folks, 100% of what we get, we're sending to Casa Rente. We don't take any fees whatsoever. It goes completely to them. You know, when we started doing this, I really thought that the body of Christ would support the other works and not us. But you know, the Lord has an amazing way of working things. A lot of people begin to sponsor a pastor, a child, and even a chaplain. And we have our chaplains up there too. And it's $75 to sponsor one of those. If you sponsor one of the pastors, it's $75. If you sponsor two, it's $150. If you sponsor all three, it's $200. It is an automatic debit. It comes out on the third of each month. You must fill out the form and give it back to us, folks. Don't take these and leave because we won't know if they're supported. Uh, we tell people that you just put your name, address, and number, you sign it at the bottom. Voided checks work best for us, but you can use a debit or credit card. It's just that with voided checks, we don't pay any fees on it. In closing this morning is a group of believers. You need to examine your lives and ask the major question, will I give to the Lord what costs me nothing? Or will I make my life count for the Lord Jesus Christ? I've told my wife, Vicki, honey, I want us to act as the last five or next five or 10 years or the last of our life, because there is a high probability it will be. And I want us to run and finish this race well. I tell my guys, I said, guys, a lot of you men, you're gonna fall in battle. And when you fall, you'll be all by yourself. There won't be anybody by your side. Things will be going around you, fighting will be going, bullets will be flying, and you're going to die alone by yourself. But I want you to understand what's gonna happen. You're gonna close your eyes, and as you begin to reopen your eyes, you're gonna open them on the other side of eternity. And there before you will stand your brothers that have gone before you. And they will be clothed in heavenly armor. They will be in their new bodies and they will reach down and they will pull you up into your new body. And you will walk into the banquet hall, the great banquet hall, and the ground will begin to tremble. And people will begin to cheer. And all of a sudden you're gonna see Jesus Christ for the first time and he's gonna look at you and he's gonna say, well done my son, well done. See, one of the things that we need to understand as believers is Jesus does not want a portion of your life. He doesn't want 75%. He doesn't want 85%. He doesn't want 95%. We are to be all in. We are to be a light sitting on a hilltop. We're not to fit into this world, folks. We're to love Christ in such a way that it defines who we are in the Lord. And as believers, we need to have a burden for the lost. It should trouble us when we go to bed at night that there are people that are perishing out there that have never once in their life heard the name of Jesus Christ. And it should call us to action, whether it's through prayer, through giving, or through going. We're all part of the body of Christ, but we need to be reaching out to win the lost. If for some reason you go out there and you want to sponsor this and you don't have your information with you, just pick out what you want, sign it at the bottom, Give us your name and address, and the girls will call you later and get the rest of your information, your credit card or whatever it is. The rest of them, you'll get updates on our chaplains, the children of Casa Herente, 
but the ghost operations, we can never tell you about them. If they're killed, we will inform you about that, but that's all that we can do. We want to encourage you as a church. You've got a great fellowship here. You've got great pastors. But the Bible says, to whom much has been given, much shall be required. God bless you.